Welcome to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast. My name is Doug Winters, and I will be your host and trusty guide in attempting to demystify the entire daunting process of planning the perfect wedding. In a casual interview format, I'll be talking to the top industry professionals so you can hear directly from them exactly what it is they actually do. The event coordinators, musicians, florists, dress designers, photographers, and even maitre d's that you'll be trusting to make your wedding an unforgettable experience. And as I remind every couple that I play for, this will inevitably be the most expensive party you'll ever throw, but remember, it's still a party. Let's do the show. Melanie Lust is an artist. She follows the works of the legendary French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, and yes, I practiced that before I said it, who discovered what he calls the decisive moment. She'll explain what the decisive moment actually means and just about anything else you'd ever want to know about wedding photography. Meet my very good friend, Melanie Lust. All right, so you, you grew up in San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. And instead of going to college, you went to Alvin Ailey Dance School? Yeah, so at 18, I had the choice of going to study math and engineering um, at either Occidental College or uh, Cal State, where I had a full scholarship. Right. I auditioned for Alvin Ailey. I didn't get into the company, but I got into the school. So I went to New York when I was 18. That's brave. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't think so at the time. So you did three years of that before going to NYU? Yeah, I did that. I did um, Alvin Ailey when Alvin Ailey was alive and told me that I'd never get into his company because I wasn't black. Yeah, that makes it difficult. So then I went to commercial uh, dance. Like you were dancing uh, Skittles on, on, on a commercial or something like that? <laughs> um, American Express, uh, Vidal Sassoon, like those types of things. So I worked for this modeling agency. I mean, I'm not like a tall, thin model, but just when they needed people for regular being young and gorgeous but not not being five foot eight not being five foot eight or even close um i did this one job for um there's a toy convention every year in in manhattan and i and i was dressed up as a giant sneaker trying to sell these funny shoelaces and so it was a three-day job it was 25 you were dressed as a sneaker as a sneaker so it was a three-day job and i had to wear um this giant sneaker except my legs were showing and I got hit on, that, like, during this job, I got hit on more than any other job or any other time ever. It was pretty funny. So your face and your legs are sticking out of a giant sneaker? No, no face. No face. Just the legs. Oh, so your legs got hit on. Legs. I used to have dancer legs, but yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it was funny, but it paid, it paid a lot. These little jobs paid a lot. Okay, so then you, okay. so when did you decide to bag that and go to full-time college, full, full-time NYU? Um, I decided I didn't like the dance world because of the way that the world is structured. The whole show business structure of the world is not. That's right. We were talking about the Harvey Weinstein effect. Yeah. So the casting couch. And the casting couch, which which I always thought was a, was a myth. No, the casting couch is real. And it's it exists um, in most cases. So you're expected to enjoy the comforts of the fat, disgusting director or producer so he can do your job. I'm t- did you have a note? I'm t- I know we talked about this before. Yeah, but did you notice that Harvey Weinstein and Roger Ailes and the other guy from Fox? They're are very all like, attractive men. Yeah. <laughs> very attractive men. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And those are all these big, fat, ugly guys. Yeah, super hot guys. I got my degree in art history. I started studying for a PhD in art history. And... Um, I stopped because the requirements at that stage after the master's were just too intense. For me, it was four more years of 
um, Dutch manuscripts in basements in Holland. So you had to learn Dutch and because... I had to learn Dutch and German and... Rembrandt and... Yeah, and French and Latin. German and French were really important in art history because all of the art historians uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century were French and German, and all of those books are not translated. Oh, God. Yeah, and then you have to learn the language of your specialty. So if I had specialized in Italian painting, I'd have to learn Italian, but I was specializing in Dutch and Flemish, so I needed to learn Dutch and also Latin because at the time, um, all the manuscripts were written in Latin. Jeez. Yeah, a lot of language. All right, so then you graduate and you get a job at Sotheby's? Mm-hmm, which was really fun. And, um, oh, tell, tell the Mondrian story. Working at Sotheby's, I, I was the bottom of the totem pole and I had to do everything. Um, I did the research for the catalogs. I helped prepare the exhibition space. I had to tell many, many potential clients that their paintings that they found in their grandmother's basements were absolutely worthless, um, much to their extreme anger and frustration that they thought they would be millionaires because... You know, you see movies like they find a, a clown picture and then they, they pull back the you know the uh, the first layer and they find yeah. that they have a Rembrandt yeah, behind it really or something. <laughs> I mean, it ha- doesn't it's really happened happen. maybe five times, but it doesn't happen every day. Like these people wanted it to. Um, I had to authenticate artworks, which which was um, a very emotional experience. Explain that because people really, really, hundred percent were convinced that the, the painting that they found in the basement or in the will or, or you know, on the estate was uh, an original and yeah. that it would take them to a new stratosphere um, in society. And economically. Yeah, economically. And um, the paintings are, were usually just bad paintings. And you, you had studied how to authenticate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these you could just tell right away that they weren't anything. And, oh really? Yeah, and others you could you could tell by um, you know their students were required to do a grand tour in the 19th century to go to all the museums and copy the paintings. There are tons of copies going around as academic painting exercises by the students, and so a lot of people mix them up and think that these paintings were done by the original artist when they're really just student exercises. So we got a lot of those. Yeah, a oh, lot wow. of those, and you can you can really tell. You can tell. Yeah, there's the mainly the finesse of the painting, the the brush stroke. Yeah, and a lot of them were actually placed in really nice frames, so the frames were worth more than the painting. Oh god. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you had to break people's heart and say, uh, "Sorry, yeah. dude, but Not yeah, nothing." Um, okay, so take me from there. So after that, so um, one of the things I had to do was I had to deliver a Mondrian painting to Park Avenue and he wanted it hand delivered. So I had to walk from Sotheby's, which is on 70th and York to Park Avenue. And he was like 65th and Park. So it was about 10 blocks in the middle of the day in the winter um, with this $10 million painting. And no, no bodyguards, no armed guards with you. Nothing. No bodyguards. I was really scared. Not so much that someone would rob me, but that I would trip and fall or oh uh, get hit God. by a car. <laughs> but um, this guy wanted it hand delivered. And so I go into the building and, you know, it's the fancy Upper East Side building. Right. And he answered the door in a robe surrounded by a bevy of hot babes. Cool. And I thought it was like Hugh Hefner, New York. Cool. Yeah. 
but it, it wasn't Hugh Hefner. It was just some some rich guy, and he wanted to open it in front of me right. just to make sure that it was the Mondrian. And I can't believe Sotheby's had you walking around with the ten billion dollar painting. I'm not insured. You know? I was going to ask you about that. You didn't have to be bonded or anything. No, you were just like some scrub getting paid ten bucks an hour carrying a ten yeah. million dollar painting. Really, I think it was ten dollars an hour at the time. Um, okay, so at NYU. Um, we had to learn photography right. because for our dissertations, we were photographing works of art that, you know, some of it hadn't even been photographed yet. Like what, for example? Give me an example. Um, well, in the basement in the ancient um, sculpture museum in Naples, there are hundreds and hundreds. There's so much there. You can't even believe it. Yeah. The thing is that they're not the best works. They're like the fifth or sixth rate work by the artist. And even if you found out, it wouldn't, even if you found it. It wouldn't be like, okay, so yeah, it was done by Rodin or you know some sculptor, but it's not right. one of his best works. So who cares? yeah, yeah, like <laughs> when you go to the Louvre, right? You see so many third and fourth rate paintings. You can imagine in their basement what they have and their storage facilities, what the sixth rate paintings look like. Right. <laughs> so, so you had to learn to photograph. Actually, photographing a sculpture would be a lot different than photographing a painting because it's two deg- three-dimensional as opposed to two-dimensional. Yeah, so for the sculptures, we had to learn how to light them. So, um, and also, to say, it was re- it's really hard to light paintings for photography because any type of gloss will make a glare on the light, and then you won't be able to see all the, the details. So we had to learn how to put the paintings, like construct this kind of black box, and have the light pass through the front, like go, go horizontally in front of the painting so that no light was shining directly on the painting. And then for the sculpture, that was actually more fun because like a human being, whatever you wanted to enhance would be in the foreground with the brightest light. You have to get different angles? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that famous picture? Uh, well, of course you do. The famous picture of the David. Mm-hmm. And it's like one shot, like going from the, from the ground up. Yes. So somebody like you shot that. Yeah. And they decided that that was the definitive Michelangelo David picture. Yeah. So there could be, there actually could be thousands and thousands of pictures of. Yes. But that was decided to be like, when I think of the David, I think of that picture. Right. Okay. Um, Wedding photography. Yes. How did this all start? How did this, so you have this amazing education, this amazing you learn four languages. You're studying all the great masters. Um, tell me about photography masters. Tell me about Henri. Uh... Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he, he created what's called the decisive moment where there's one split second. Right. Wait, wait, let's back this up for a second. Yeah. I had asked you when we first, uh, we, we did a party together when we became immediate best friends. And I, I was asking you about candids or paparazzi and how the whole thing started. Right. And you explained to me that there was this French photographer named... Henri Cartier-Bresson. Thank you. Um, <laughs> who basically invented the style. Uh, just explain how that happened, how he did that. So what he would do is he would wait on a street corner for hours and hours and hours and hours waiting for the right moment to pass. And, you know, it, whether it be, you know, a child with a stick rolling something when the shadow was just right as the person with the bread on their head was walking by um, and capture them in the perfect composition. Two seconds or five seconds later, it's just, it doesn't work. 
but that one perfect second is where it works. And so what he had in his mind was usually the Fibonacci spiral or these compositional things that we use to make a composition interesting and to draw the eye around the the picture plane and to, to make you think in different ways about what's going on. And so that that's all in his mind. Like he sees the composition and he, he, it's just a part of him. And then he sees when it's going to happen, but he has to anticipate it because at the time it was, the cameras were manual focus. Right. Oh, wow. So what year are we talking about? 1930s? Um, yeah. Late 19th century, early 20th century. So he'd have to anticipate okay. that this moment was going to happen because there's a lag between the time you push the shutter and the time that the moment happens. It's pretty amazing. And so he called it the decisive moment. Now, the camera that I use for certain portions of the day, and uh, I photographed the Mets once, and it does 13 frames a second. So it's a little bit different. And you just hold it down. It's like, like a machine, machine gun. gun. It literally, yeah, it's just like a machine gun. Um, but then, I mean, think about it, it was manual focus. Everything, you know, and you had to set the aperture, and you had to set the shutter speed, and you had to set focus. So... And everything was manual. So he called that the decisive moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really exciting. Yeah. It, it's really hard to be present, I feel, especially nowadays with technology. You're constantly pulled in so many different directions and so many things are happening. And when I'm photographing a wedding, much more so than a commercial or editorial shoot, I have to be in the moment. Because if I'm not in the moment, I'm going to miss something. Or if I let my guard down. And this is why I also have a hard time um, working with certain associate photographers because they want to talk to me or like some wedding planners want to talk to me. And I'm like, you don't understand. If you're talking to me, that means I'm potentially missing something. That And all these surprises are always happening. And the, the best thing for me is when uh, the couples get their pictures back and they, they're like, oh my gosh, that happened? That ha- I can't believe that happened. Wow, that real like, yeah, all of this happened. <laughs> You know what just occurred to me? You are actually, you almost have to block out noise. Yeah. Because what you're shooting is, you could almost like have headphones on, you know, noise canceling headphones, because right. this, what you're shooting is, let's say a father, father's making a toast mm-hmm. and he's making this great face and he's pointing. I just picture a random anything. Um, it's not what he's saying. It's, it's, it's the moment. Right. Or if a bride's laughing, it's not the joke that she's laughing at. It's not important what the exact moment was about. It was that you were able to capture. Well, it's about the connection. So you just mentioned the father's house and I'm actually reviewing a wedding. I just photographed in September at the Metropolitan Club in New York. And the father, oh, one of my favorite places. Oh, it's gorgeous. And um, the father um, was giving a toast and, you know, after doing weddings for all these years, you had him know like what to anticipate. So mm-hmm. he says, and people came from, you know, all over near and far with some really special people here. So of course I'm looking out at the tables and trying to figure out who's he going to call on next. Who's going to, you know, yeah, this is not a TV shoot where you have a list of shots. No, but, <laughs> no yeah. so I, This one's at table three. And yeah. You know. Yeah. So this is why, you know, like working with a planner and seeing who's sitting where, and these types of things are really, really important to me. So right. he, he said, you know, his mother came. He didn't think she'd be able to make it, but she made it. And she she stood up and she pointed at him and winked and then sat back down. And so, like, 
of course, I'm thrilled because I'm going through the pictures. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, that's so, <laughs> so funny. These are the types of things that, you know. I, that's great. It, it's very exciting. When, when did digital photography become? So I got I the regular digital thing. in 2008, which was kind of late. Is there a difference, like like when people say there's a difference between LPs, you know, records and and CDs? Yeah, I would say it's not. That they say it's like a warmth that you don't get. Yeah, yeah. There's this. Well, it also depends on the film type of film you use. I mean, back in the day, you had to, like, people had to wait months for their pictures, right, or weeks certainly, because you had to develop all the pictures. And so back in the day, you might have done several hundred, but now you can actually shoot several thousand. Yeah. So I usually <laughs> deliver like between 1,200 to 1,800 pictures, but wow. it still takes time because we shoot in what's called raw, which is, is, is pretty great um, compared to JPEG. So when you shoot in raw, you have- Oh, so raw, digital- that's R-A-W. I always wonder what yeah. that was. So it's like a digital negative. So the, the basic information is there, but you have to feed the information to the file to export it into a printable resolution. So for your average bride or for your average me, what does that mean? That means that I have to go into each image and add information. These colors, this exposure. It's not just magical. You don't shoot it and then it's done. No, And so, so you can batch process a lot of these things. Like if everything was in the same lighting, um, you know, for 10 minutes, then you can, you throw in the same colors and the same black point, the same exposure. Mm. But let's say you're in, and, and this is where I love raw. So let's say you're photographing in a church and it has those awful yellow lights, right? <laughs> okay. so you have your color temperature a certain way right. and it's pretty dark. And then the, the church lady opens the doors and you're walking outside and it's a sunny day. Well, oh, if you geez. have the same exposure, you, it would be completely blown out and the whole picture would be white. But I shoot on manual and I know I'm going to dial down my exposure as I'm walking back and clicking. But let's say I'm off by one or two stops, which is natural because I don't know if it's cloudy outside or sunny outside or raining outside because I've been in this mass for over an hour. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what's going on outside. The door is <laughs> open. And if I turn to look, then I'm going to miss a really special moment. Um, and with, oh, wow. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So with film, you would have had before like two camera bodies. You would have black and white, not color, because you can't adjust. And you would have had to like pre-program that one camera in black and white for whatever's happening outside. But let's say you programmed it and it was sunny outside. And you go outside now, it's cloudy. And it's like two stops darker. So with RAW, you can add the information later. So you don't have to worry about that stuff. So it it gives you a little more leeway in these types of tricky situations, which is great. So you can change color to black and white. You just can't, can't change black and white to color. Right. So all raw is in color, but this is very time consuming, but you know, it's worth it. Right. So, all right. So, so an average party, uh-huh. you do the church, you do the, or the temple or wherever, you know, wherever it's going to be or at the hotel and you do the cocktail hour, you shoot the four hours of the party. Um, oh, here's a question I have for you. How long are you contracted for? So my contracts are usually between 10 and 12 hours. I've never shot uh, a normal wedding under 10 hours, unless it was like a little brunch or an elopement. Um, I'm usually there 12 hours because I arrive two hours before the bride needs to leave anywhere and three hours if she has a big wedding party. So we start by capturing like all of her 
makeup and getting ready and makeup chair and the hair and getting the dress on. And then we do all of our portraits and then on the way to the church, the whole church or temple, whatever it is, mm-hmm. the writing room portraits, the wedding party. Oh, so you start at the house or at the hotel. Yeah. That's why by the time I get to the reception and you see me, I look like I've been through a tornado. Which is why you're wearing sneakers and, and black no pants. Sneakers, and no sneakers. Ballet, no sneakers. Ballet okay. Ballet flats. Yeah. Of course we're a dancer. Okay. <laughs> you're most comfortable. Yes. Um, and like I noticed when we worked together, you... Like, we'll jump on the stage. You'll just run around. and Yeah, I'm never stopping. Which is so great. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, from the moment the party's over. Uh-huh. Party's over at 1 o'clock in the morning. Yes. When does the bride and groom get to see the pictures? Okay, so, so I go home. Because you're always busy, by the way. Anytime I try, I call Melanie, she'll say, yeah. you know what? I, I have, I'm backed up, like, insane. Can I call you, like, in three days? Really? So... Explain the process. So I get home and then I back up the images onto two drives. So I used to um, try to go to sleep before I did this. The problem was, is I worried that if something would happen to the flashcard that um, I would die. (laughs) Oh, oh, something happens to the flashcard. It's over. It's over. Yeah. I'm usually up till five or six in the morning backing up the cards. I back up to one drive and then I go to sleep. And then the next day I back up to the second drive. And how long does it take to back up a drive? Three to four hours per card, about, yeah. And then I try to get a sneak peek to the couple the next day or the day after. So I just go through really quickly, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to just find, they need something, you know, they have to have something, especially because now um, with Facebook, their friends will post these awful pictures. I just feel like she looks so beautiful, and like, this is what, this is what people think she looked like now because that's got to be the bane of your existence. Some idiot with a, with an iPhone took a shot and she was drunk when she took it. And yeah. <laughs> do people do, um, uh, hashtag and all that? Yeah. So weddings now have hashtags. It's adorable. And so it's just a fun place where, you know, you post all the pictures and it's good for me because then it helps people find me. Like people want to, see my pictures and they can just go to the hashtag why do people bring phones to <laughs> to you know like playing a jewish wedding you step on the glass now or you know you may now kiss the bride everyone holds out a phone and takes a picture and it's like wait a minute don't you see melanie back there you know it's a professional photographer who's going to take it and it'll be a hundred times better and you're missing the moment if you can answer that for me i'll give you a million dollars Okay, good. All right. So I'm glad we're on the same page about that. I, I, I never understand that. It's a different generation. A teaser. Okay. So we usually send pictures that I wouldn't post on Facebook. They want to see the formal portraits, like the moms. They want to see the clothing and how nicely everyone, they want to show up to their friends, their beautiful dresses. So I'd say 80% of the time I'm hired by the mothers of the brides, you know, and I can, I can relate. Like it's, this is everything for her. Oh, I know. I know. And it's so, I mean, it's so easy now that everyone's got software, everyone's got Photoshop or something. They can, you can really, you know, take away a blemish. You could take away an age line. You could take take a day with double chin. Yeah, we don't want to. Do you find yourself doing a lot of that or no? No. um, You know, lighting helps a lot with making everything very soft, like soft diffuse flattering uh, light is great for the, the older babes, as they call it. Right, right, right. And then um, we only retouch the images that go into the albums. I really did notice that uh, when you work, you set up 
lights around the room yeah. and you don't do a lot. You don't change it a lot. No, no. You but, just set it up once. Yeah, but there, we can control the ratios from our cameras. So I have each, each light is, can be programmed to be higher or lower depending on where I am that I control from the camera. So you're thinking all the time. Yeah, I am. <laughs> the name of the podcast being Wedding Wisdom. You know, I'm trying to ask any, any question that I can that really helps, you know, brides and grooms because, you know, ask questions that they might not even think to ask. Like, for example, um, do you talk to people? They can say, all right, I want a picture with me and my mother. I want a picture of me and my grandmother. I want a picture of me and my husband. I want a picture of... Yeah, that's something we work on throughout the course of the year. All right, so give me the process. So someone books you, what, a year in advance? Usually a year in advance, yeah. And then we work together to develop the perfect timeline um, based upon the quantity of portraits. So let's say, um, like I had a bride once that had 19 bridesmaids and 19 groomsmen. Wow. So she didn't need any more time for her photos. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I would think so. Um, and then I also had a family that had 42 <laughs> family portrait groupings. And I, and I just said, we're going to need two hours. And it's up At to least. You. Yeah, you're going to be exhausted, but if this is what you want, it's... it's and when do you do that? When is the time to do that? Um, before the ceremony. So uh, most Jewish weddings have what's called the first look because they have to sign the ketubah before... The ketubah, yeah. Yeah, before the ceremony. So they have to see each other. So they can see each other, and then we do all of the pictures, and then they go right from ceremony to cocktail to reception. So give me an example. The ceremony, uh, the, the invitation to the ceremony is at 7 o'clock. Uh, they sign a ketubah at 6.30. When are these portraits done? Like 2, 3 o'clock? We want them wrapped up with their portraits by 5.45 because, and we've had to do this so many times where the guests will be like an hour early and we're literally like walking, holding our bags, like trying to hide the bride from everybody. Oh, God. Or, or if we're not done with portraits, we have to find an alternate location that's out of the way. They wrap up by 5.45. And so then I would arrive at 1 o'clock to start capturing everybody getting ready. And if there are, if it's like six or seven bridesmaids, one o'clock, if there are 19 bridesmaids, <laughs> then arrive at 12 o'clock. No, it's just interesting to me because if you figure a party's from nine to one, you've already been there for maybe seven hours. Yeah. That's why we all look so tired when you see us. <laughs> yeah, that's so insane. That's that is great. Like four locations. In the city, they want to have it in Central Park or... Any park or... I have a wedding next year. Um, I have to be there. It's 8 a.m. to midnight because she has 16 bridesmaids and 16 groomsmen. And they want photos in the park in between. And the, the church and the reception are in totally different areas of the city. This never happens with you. But like a photographer will say, um, we're going to take the entire bridal party out for 20 minutes to take pictures in the hallway. And it's like, wait a minute. Everyone is following the bride. Everyone's on the dance floor because of the bride. And then all of a sudden, you're taking everyone out for a half hour. You're not allowing me to have the bride because they're taking them out in the middle of the party. Okay, but you know what? Don't blame the photographer. Blame the makeup artist because... (laughs) Okay, there you go. Wedding wisdom indeed. Makeup on average runs, I'd say, 30 to 75 minutes behind in every single wedding I've had. Why? Um. Because the makeup artist will say, oh, it only takes you 45 minutes to do your makeup. But what they don't realize is while the bride's sitting there, you know, a bridesmaid will come up and say, my, my zipper ripped. What, you know, I mean, this is true. Like, um, and then, you know, the bride will say, oh, my aunt knows how to sew. So she, and so she's sitting there, but she's constantly interrupted with a million questions. 
And if, if you have a good planner, you don't have to worry about this stuff. I still don't understand why the makeup always runs late. Uh, the bride always gets a picture with each bridesmaid, with her mom, with her aunt, with every single person that's there. So if the makeup runs late, then we don't do that. We're going to have to do that later. And then I'll go up to the bride and say, look, we, we don't have time to do all of these because we're running so late. We can do them after the ceremony. And so then let's say the ceremony is supposed to start at five, but then it doesn't start till 530 because some of the guests are late or there was bad traffic or a bus hits the Rolls Royce, which has happened. No way. Really? Yeah. That was a fun day. And then um, <laughs> something. Are you in happened. the Rolls Royce with them? No, no, I wasn't. Okay. You're just waiting for them. Where the hell are they? Oh, they got hit by a bus. So with Brian and the mom, and we've had meetings all year, and we've worked on this shot list, and she'll be so upset if she gets her images back and she doesn't have these pictures. Now we have to do pictures of the bride and groom, family pictures, all the pictures we miss, and we have, you know, it's 20 minutes to the venue. So this is, this is what happens. Oh, so you're getting back to me complaining that the photographer has taken them out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> When things get pushed back, what gets taken away are pictures. Because, you know, the reception has to start on time. The band has to start on time. The limo driver has to end at, you know, 7 because he's going to be off the clock and gone. And um, so the pictures just get lost. But if they get their pictures back and don't have what they've been working on for all year, then I'm in big trouble. Forgetting about the fact that the, the bride is nervous because she's about to get married. Yeah. So if you if you don't get it and you know you haven't gotten, let's say there are 15 bridesmaids and you know you only got 12, will you know who that the three are that you didn't get and you'll make sure that you get a great picture of them dancing or something like that? No, I will, I will make sure I get a great picture of the bride with the brides. If we're at the reception and three bridesmaids were missing because let's say they were nursing their children or... <laughs> You know, all these things happen or, or one was sewing the zipper and the other one, it couldn't cut, whatever. Um, one was tending to the car accident. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll say, I'll go up to the bride. I'll say, look, we have these three bridesmaids. I, I'm going to go find them and get them and get, and either she'll say no, or she'll say yes. A lot of times she's like, I don't care. No. And then I, you know, I'll bring the mother over and I'll say, you know, I just want to know your daughter said this. And so I have a witness. How come these three bridesmaids aren't here? I'm like, remember she was nursing and then, her talk, she had to go take her toddler back home and it was a disaster. And then they came in late and, you know, and then you, you said, you didn't oh, want God. Okay. Anymore. I don't remember saying that's that. right. Cause mom's paying. Yeah. So this is, this is why, um, photographers will take bridesmaids away from you. Sorry. Say, I have an answer now. Talk about wedding wisdom. This is, this is my wedding wisdom. All right. This is great. Nightmare story. What would be like an, uh, a nightmare scenario for you? Oh, a lot of times speeches can be really tough. Like a lot of times they're roasts or they're like saying something that they shouldn't be saying. And, you know, we are in the corner with our zoom lens getting super tight close-ups and we see the emotions that are occurring during the speech and how it's like really hurting the person. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so then, you know, we, when we are going through the images, it's like, should we show this or not? You know, I've had grooms literally say like, like, you know, put their finger across their throat yeah. and say, you know, yeah. give the guy the hook, you know. And I was like, I can't, you know, he doesn't know who I am. You yeah. know, like I'm just the band leader, whatever. You, you get him off. Do you shoot the person or do you go behind the person to shoot the bride and groom's reaction? Uh, we do both. I usually shoot the speaker until I feel I have a flattering um, image of him because oftentimes when speakers are toasting, you know, when their mouths are half open, their eyes, they or they're reading from a iPad or something. Yeah, or their eyes 
heads are down the whole time. So I try to anticipate when they're going to look up. And then once I feel I have that, then I'll go over to the bride and groom's reactions. If, if the, like the brother of the groom is saying something about, you know, his childhood, then I'll go and look at the, you know, photograph the mom and the dad and the uncle. If the speech goes on way too long, <laughs> which it often does, then I'll like shoot a wide shot from behind of the, you know, or a shot where the paper's in focus and the bride and groom's faces are soft yeah. or, you know, the words are in focus or, you know, and then we can play a little bit more if, if it's a long speech. So how many weddings do you shoot a year? Um, I, I don't shoot a lot. I shoot up to 20. Okay. Um, because it really requires so much energy, <laughs> you know, um, so yeah. pre-planning and post-planning. And then the, I send the couple questionnaire. What are some, maybe some special features about the wedding that I don't know about. Um, so I try to memorize like all that stuff, like their connection, um, so that I can bring it up during the portrait session just so that the portrait session will have some meaning. Like I'll just say, um, you know, go back to that time in Rockefeller center where you were on your knee and, and how happy you felt or something like that. Did, did you match how great the suit or whatever? But if I know something about them, then when I direct their portrait session, it will have more meaning. I work on that. I work on, um, I go on their Facebook pages. This may seem creepy, but um, a lot of times people on their Facebook page will have their picture a certain way. So they're like, oh, okay, the bride likes her face this way. So I'm going to make her, yeah. Yeah, like she is always like this, which means I'm only going to photograph her like this. (laughs) You know, she's practiced her selfies a million times. Yeah, and then um, oftentimes they'll have a wedding website. So I'll read through, they'll have descriptions of the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. And I'll try to find who's the joker. There's always one joker, right? One crazy guy. Right. I'll ask his help during portraits to make everyone laugh. So one time I, I, I saw this one guy. I'm like, I know he's introduced for him. I'm like, we drop trowel and see what happens. So he moved them. And oh, that's hysterical. I got the best picture because everyone's standing there and they're hysterical laughing for like 10 minutes. And it was like the best picture. So that goes actually back to uh, Cartier-Bresson. Yeah. You're actually creating the perfect image? No, the perfect moment. Decisive moment. Decisive moment. Yeah. <laughs> so there really is no official decisive moment. That's what you think is a decisive moment. Might not be somebody else's decisive moment. But you could go so fast now. You could take, you know, five pictures in a second or something like that. That's true. Yeah, but you don't want to do that because you want to come back with 5,000 pictures to go through and... 4,000 <laughs> And also that drives you insane. Yeah. Sometimes couples will have like all that magic. They'll be like that incredible connection. They'll be showing a lot of emotion and I won't have to do as much as I normally do. Um, other times the couples are pretty cold. And so then it's like, I have to work my ass off to get something there. Like you're wondering why they're getting married in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> So how am I going to interact with this person to get the best out of them and get them to really show me their authentic, genuine self, you know, in front of this lens in this situation. So you might be talking to this person for a year off and on, like once a month, just say hi. So you're getting a sense of who they are. Yeah. Um, what aren't I asking? I would say the, the one thing I want to say um, for brides, like tips for brides, it's really important to know that something's going to go wrong on your wedding day that the wedding is, is just about love and it's about your connection and showing that. And a lot of times we'll have a bride, we'll be photographing her and the bridesmaid will say, Oh no, what about this angle? Or we'll almost say, wait, look, look here, stop here. Look, smile. You're not smiling. You're not smiling. You're smiling. And it's, it's just, there's too much going on. And what I try to do is get the bride alone 
so that I can really you know, get her to calm down, take some deep breaths, look out the window, talk about what she's proud of, you know, how she's feeling and get some real intimate moments with her. And it's really hard to do that when there are a lot of people around. My advice is listen to your photographer. <laughs> if the photographer knows what they're doing, they're going to be able to get that image that your grandchildren are going to look at and say, oh my gosh, look how, look how proud and, and beautiful mom or grandma looked on her wedding day. Like you can, you can see there's so much emotion in that picture. You can really see who she was as a beautiful young woman. Yeah, listen to your photographer because I will tell the couples to do some things that they may think are really silly but then when they see the picture, like, for example, last week, I, I asked a couple, said, come together, stand apart, come together. And as soon as you come together, tap your foreheads together and just grab each other and slowly sway. And they were like, what? <laughs> well, they did this. And then the second they tapped their heads together, they just, they both opened up and started laughing hysterically because what they were doing was so stupid. That's the moment that they love. Like I showed them that picture and they're like, oh my God, how did you get that? They completely forgot that I told them to do this stupid thing. But it, it generated like a true connection and laughter between them in a moment that they shared. We want to make images for your grandchildren, not for you. Oh, that's a very good point. I learned so much about photography. And, and not to blame the photographer if they take people out of the room in the middle of in the middle of the room. No, I know it's frustrating, but... It seems to me that a lot of photographers want to leave an hour before the end of the party or something like that. Like they'll say to me, oh, can you cut the cake early so I can get a picture of that? I always like the last picture. Like when they come in a circle and they don't, like I feel like it's worth to stay an extra hour just to for them for that because it's like your crew. You know, everyone else is gone, but you're, you're your crew, crew is there. there. All right, so Melanie, um, I know that you're very big on social media. Yeah. So tell people how to follow you. Yeah, Melanie Less Photography. And it's M-E-L-A-N-I-L-U-S-T photography. There's no E after the I. And Melanie S Photography, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Google Plus, there I am. Oh, it always just starts with Melanie Lust Photography. Yeah. I follow you all the time. Thank you. <laughs> and I can't thank you enough for doing this. This was wonderful. Thank you. This has been so much fun. Next time I'll interview you. Done. Um, when are we getting together for a drink? Um, November. Please. See, I wasn't kidding when I said, <laughs> when I said, yeah, I'll, I'll call me in three days. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Well, I'm still processing September right now. And then November, it dies down. Okay. Episode two, officially in the books. Got to admit that was a pretty good one. So we're officially on iTunes, Stitcher and a couple of other places. So go there and download us and review us and give us five star reviews and tell all your friends. And let's see if we can get some momentum going here. We're officially going to make this a weekly thing, so let me know who you want to hear from next. Again, I can be found on Twitter at WedWisdomPod and on Facebook at Doug Winters BKS. I will see you next week. <laughs>